Join me in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do need you. We don't even realize how much we need you and how much you provide for us when we simply wake up in the morning and we have a bed to sleep in and the simple things of life, even clothes to wear. We need you for that. We need you for every breath that we take. We need you to sustain us and to keep us and to hold us. Even the very faith that we profess in your beloved son this morning, we need you to keep us strong in that faith. Father, we know that Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we, were, we are always, Father, under threat of assault and our faith is being attacked. We ask that you would keep us and that you would keep us firm until the end that you would enable us as your people to walk faithfully before you. We thank you, O oh God, that you have given to us your holy word to help guide us and direct us, and you have given us of your spirit to help us to see and believe and to abide in the truth of that word. As we look at your word this morning, we ask, O oh God, that you would take your word Strengthen your people and build us up that we might be faithful servants of the living God. I pray for strength, Father, and wisdom. I pray that you would be with my tongue and with my lips. That you would forgive me, Father, for where I err. And you would protect your people from such error, O God. Help me to be faithful. May you enable me to have a clear mind and a, and a speech, Lord, that is not tainted by so much of my sin. Father, we all need your forgiveness, and we ask that you would grant that to us now and be with your word. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. This morning we will be looking at uh, verses 18 through uh, verse 35. John 13, 18 to 35. Kind of picks up there right in the middle of uh, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Uh, but let's pick up there in verse 18. Our Lord says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because... Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also short." I think I need glasses. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Last week, we looked at Jesus' object lesson on love where he washed the feet of his disciples. Uh, The washing of their feet pointed, we said, to an ultimate cleansing that he would provide on the cross through his sacrifice. He would bring sanctification throughout our lives as well. It's not just a, it's a one-time cleansing, it's perfect, it's the cross brings that perfection before God, but he's also going to sanctify us until we get to glory. He's going to continue to wash our feet. And it also provided an example of love that he expected us, his disciples, to follow. And so as he's providing this lesson to his disciples, you'll remember that John noted that there was Judas who was among them and how his heart was not filled with the love of Jesus, but he notes that Judas's heart was filled with Satan's desires. And so while Jesus is washing the feet of Judas, Judas was thinking about himself. And Judas was plotting 
how he might betray Jesus. And so therefore, after addressing Peter, Jesus said to them, imagine this. Jesus, even here, if we are gathered and we are with the Lord, and Jesus is with his disciples, and then Jesus says to them, not every one of you is clean. There was one among them who played the role of disciple. There was one among them who pretended to love Jesus. There was one among them who decided and desired to pad his pockets through his affiliation with Jesus. There was one among them who had never been thoroughly washed and cleansed by Jesus. And that was Judas. Judas was a hypocrite. Judas was just like the Pharisees of whom Jesus said, you are a whitewashed tomb, but inwardly you are filled with dead man's bones. The presence of false disciples and even, sadly, in church leadership is a reality that the Christian church has always, always faced. It's not just hypocritical church leaders that the church has to deal with, but it's just hypocritical false disciples that are within the church. Jesus said there will always be wolves among the sheep, wolves that are dressed in sheep's clothing, who are looking to harm the cause of Christ, who are looking to undermine the gospel of Christ, and who will use Christ for personal gain. And I don't know about you, but when you see especially church leaders fall, it can really shake you. It can really rattle your faith. Because you see someone, and, and the, the fact of the matter is, if you've at all been following Christian news, and if you at all look and follow uh, some kind of teacher online, you've been seeing a lot of it lately. Christian leaders who appear on the outside to be walking faithfully, who appear on the outside to be serving the cause of Christ, it is happening in our society, but don't be alarmed in the sense that this is something new. This has been happening all the time. But we're seeing it in the news where Christian leaders are falling because of sexual immorality or they're going against what God's word thinks or they leave the ministry. In fact, there was one, I'm not going to name names, but just recently someone who's very well known, very influential, has a big platform from preaching the gospel, has just stepped down from ministry, not because of um, blatant, outright sexual immorality, but because of 
going over the line with what a pastor should be communicating to the ladies and the women in their congregation. And thankfully, it hasn't gone further. And I pray to God that the Lord protects this individual and his family. But it's just a reminder to me. It should be a reminder to each of us that we are all sinners and we are in need of remembering that so that in our pride we, we will not leave or abandon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will not prove to be hypocrites. There is nothing more sobering in God's word than the realization that there will be those who stand before God on the judgment day that call him Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Jesus has Judas in his midst, and Judas is going to betray Jesus, and Judas will tell Judas, Jesus will tell Judas on that day, I never knew you. And so Jesus knows this, and here, here's where I want to bring home that sobering reality. Jesus knows this about us and his church. He knows that there will be those who will, who will do things that will rattle the church and seek to undermine it. He knows how harmful it is to his people, and some of you have shared with me that you've gone through that experience where a, a leader has fallen and it's rattled you, and, and Jesus knows that. He, he knows that these disciples who are with him, the 11 disciples that are loved by him, that are known by him, and that know him, he knows that when Judas falls, and when Jesus is betrayed, that it's going to rock. It's going to rock him. And so what does Jesus do here? Jesus, in this section of Scripture, he, he knows this, but he wants to remind them of something. And he wants to remind you and me of something. And there's three things that we're going to highlight in these verses that he reminds them of. He's going to remind them that Judas's betrayal was foretold in Scripture. This is where all the grounding comes in. This is telling them that no matter what you see happen in the world, understand this, that it happens according to God's word. And specifically when it comes to Jesus and Judas' betrayal, that specifically was highlighted in Scripture. So he draws them back to that foundation of God's Word, and that's in verses 18 to 20. And the second thing he's going to remind them is that Judas's betrayal, and this is important, was permitted by Jesus. So not only is it said in Scripture that it's going to happen, and not only does God ordain everything to happen, but it's also permitted by Jesus. Nothing happens in life that Jesus doesn't ultimately permit. That's in verses 21 to 30. And thirdly, 
Judas's betrayal was ultimately used to glorify Jesus and his love. Whatever happens in life, the falling of a, someone away from the faith and an apostate that goes back into the world, someone who rejects the gospel and leaves the church, no matter what happens within the world in which we live and the church, at the end of the day, everything aims at bringing glory to God. God loses not one ounce of glory when a man or woman fall away. God's glory is not diminished. God remains who he is and will always remain who he is. And so that's in verses 31 to 35. And so let's look at verses 18 to 20 and how Jesus turns the corner here after washing their feet. He says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. And then he says, I know whom I have chosen. Now, when Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you, like we said, he's referencing the spiritual cleansing that he provides for believers. And he is noting that not all of you are cleansed in that way. Not all of you have your sin atoned for. And of the 12 that were there, one was still stained and unwashed from their sin. And like we said, that's this Judas. But at first reading of that verse, you, you might conclude that his next statement where he says, I know whom I have chosen, you might conclude that Jesus is saying that Judas was not cleansed because Judas was not chosen. After all, we know from earlier passages in John that God is the one who elects sovereignly to salvation. God is the one who chooses some and doesn't choose other sinners unto salvation. And so while it's true that Judas was not among them, and Judas clearly wasn't chosen for salvation, I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. Rather, Jesus is making the point here that he is fully aware that one of the 12 that he chose will betray him. Because remember, back in John 6, verse 70, Jesus says, did I not choose you, the 12, right, to go and bear witness? So Jesus did choose 12 apostles. One of them was Judas. And so what Jesus is simply saying here when he says, I know whom I have chosen, he's basically saying, I am fully aware that of the 12 that I chose to be my apostles during my ministry, that there is one who is not really among my sheep. And if you really draw that even to the church today, Jesus is fully aware that there are those among the disciples that are not truly among his sheep and they are there and Jesus has permitted them to be there and this is the case with Judas Jesus says I know whom I've chosen and it's not a mistake why did he choose Judas then 
Why did Jesus, of all the people he could have chosen to be his disciples, why did he choose Judas, who he knew would betray him? Why didn't he choose someone else that would have been faithful, that he would have kept and would have followed Jesus to the end of the cross? After all, isn't Jesus supposed to be Lord and Master? What kind of example does it leave when someone like Judas ends up turning against the Lord, right? That might be a bit discouraging. So why does Jesus choose Judas? Well, Jesus says he chooses Judas so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so he's grounding them in God's word, saying if you want to look at the world and all that's happening, ground yourself in the word of God. Ground yourself in the truth and understand that all that God says that is going to come to pass will come to pass. And so the verse that he quotes is from Psalm 41, verse 9. This psalm is written by King David, and King David is a, is a type of the greater son to come. Jesus is the greater son to come, and, and King David is, is a type. He, he, he kind of prefigures and has pictures of the greater son, Jesus, who was to come. And that doesn't mean that everything that happened to David is going to happen to Jesus. I mean, David, after all, confesses his sin. Jesus isn't a sinner. David falls into sin. Jesus never fell into sin. So it's not everything about David, but there are certain things about King David and his life that Jesus, when he looks back, he says, there, there's something about King David's life in the scriptures that reflect what when I have come, are ultimately fulfilled in me. And one of the things that is emphasized about King's da King David's life is his suffering and that he would be betrayed by, by even those closest to him. And so here in this psalm, David is suffering with a life-threatening sickness. You see that in Psalm 41, verses 3 to 8. And while he's suffering with this life-threatening sickness, he's also being mocked by his enemies. King David is sick. He's on his deathbed. At least that's what it seems like. And his enemies are mocking him. Look at King David, this mighty figure. And he's sick and he's dying and they're mocking him. But on top of that, David says, not only are my enemies mocking me, David says, as if it couldn't get any worse, that even his close friend whom he trusted, whom he shared bread with, has lifted up his heel against me. The suffering of David is that theme that is carried out throughout the New Testament, and in this case, the betrayal of King David is carried out ultimately in the betrayal of Judas toward Jesus, a close and intimate friend of Jesus is going to betray him. Like David, the great king of Israel, he was not exempt from suffering and betrayal, so the greater king Jesus is not going to be exempt from 
betrayal. And Jesus endured it. And he endured it for you and me so that he would go to the cross and bear our sin. Jesus says, I'm telling you that this is going to happen so that when it does take place, you might believe that I am he. He's saying, it's coming. Tidal wave is going to come. You're going to be knocked off your boat. You're going to be knocked off your horse. Your faith is going to be challenged. You're, you're going to wonder, how could you let this happen, Jesus? How could Judas, Judas, he was in charge of the money bag. Judas went and preached the gospel when Jesus sent him. Judas walked with us. He ate with us. He talked with us. Judas was under your ministry, Jesus. You taught him. You, you showed him love. We, we communed together. We, we prayed together with Judas. How could Judas fall, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm telling you this before it happens so that you might believe that I am he. It almost worked on them, didn't it? Judas's betrayal almost undermined them. In fact, when Jesus ultimately was arrested and went to trial, what did all the disciples do? Boom. Scattered. And when Peter is asked, point blank range, aren't you one of those disciples of Jesus? What did Peter say? No. How many times? Three times. And when Jesus then is buried in the grave, and then he resurrects again as he was resurrecting, what were the disciples doing then? Well, they had left some of them, and they went back to fishing, didn't they? They went back to their life. They, they weren't sure what to do. They, they weren't sure what was going to happen, but their whole world was teetering, and they were wondering, and yet what we do know is it only almost worked, but what Jesus told them here was enough to bind them together. It was enough to bind them together until Jesus would appear to them and he would be exalted and he would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit and their faith would ultimately be forever grounded and, and, and abiding in Jesus. Jesus prepared them for their mission that was to come by telling them this, by pointing them to his word. And so, beloved, that is one of the points to take home from this, is that whenever you feel that there is something that is going to overturn or draw you away from Jesus, when you feel like you are, you are just at your wit's end, 
Remember, God gave his word to you and me. He gave us his promises. And whatever God says will happen, happens, and his word will always prove faithful. Always. You can bet the house on it, as they say. His word will not fail. You can always rest in that, and he will strengthen you. But he strengthens you, and he, and he keeps their faith because he also reminds them in verse 20 that he has given them a mission. So, so the mission, and we talked about this in Sunday school hour. Again, Andy did a great Sunday school hour about the mission that they're called to. This is what they were called to. Verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And basically, that's just saying to them, listen, this was done according to the scripture, rest, rest in me so that when you go out and you preach the gospel and you are my representatives in the world, that when they hear your word and they hear the gospel proclaimed, understand that those who love you and receive you and stay among you, right, not like Judas, those are the ones um, when I send and they receive them, they actually are receiving me. They're receiving Jesus. And whoever receives Jesus receives the Father who sent him. And so this is their mission and their encouragement to go out, no matter what happens, and preach the gospel. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called and loved by God. That moves us to our second point. Judas's betrayal was not only foretold by Scripture and endured by Jesus, it was also permitted by Jesus. In verse 21, after encouraging them with these words, John notes in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And, and I found that really interesting because do you remember earlier, Jesus is the one that said, my soul is troubled. But here, John is actually the one who takes note of it, and he's the one who says Jesus' soul is troubled. And in other words, John is looking at Jesus right now, and he sees in Jesus a troubled soul. Like he, he sees in Jesus something that is weighing on him and bothering him. It, it, it caught their attention. And so Jesus comes out again. Now he's going to become more specific. It's, he's been kind of, it's been kind of cryptic and hidden, but now he comes right out and he says to them, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And you can just feel the tension in the room. All the disciples, they're looking at one another. They're uncertain. They're confused of whom he's speaking. Maybe they were thinking, you know what? He must be speaking, surely not about our group. He must be speaking about someone out there. Maybe think about our church. 
we hear something like this, maybe you're thinking, surely it's no one. Surely he can't be speaking about someone here. He, this is someone else on the, on the outside. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe, maybe they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you know, um, we've heard that you said that, but maybe, maybe they're thinking, well, Jesus is going to fix it. Jesus is not going to let it happen. I mean, he's the one who calmed the storms and healed the sick. And so maybe, maybe they hear what Jesus is saying, and, and they're thinking, okay, well, he's just letting us know, but ultimately he's not going to let this happen. Maybe they thought it would, it would be a betrayal by accident. Maybe, maybe someone's going to do something that's not on purpose, that will be considered betrayal. Whatever they were thinking, Jesus' words silenced them, and so much so that Peter, you'll notice, who was always the one to speak up, remember what he did last week when he blurted out, you're never going to wash my feet, and, Jesus, and Peter always did that. He just blurted out, no, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. Oh, no, you can't do that. And Jesus always has to correct him, right? Because he's just so boisterous and out there. I love him. This kind of reminds me of um, someone I know that, anyway, boisterous, loud, Peter. But you notice that Peter here, he wants to intervene again. Only this time, you can feel like you could cut the tension like butter with a knife, as they say, right? He doesn't blurt something out. Instead, he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's a reference to John who wrote the gospel. We talked about that in the introduction. He, he, he leans over to the disciple that Jesus loved, who's reclining at Jesus' side, and Peter motions to John to ask Jesus who he's talking about. I mean, you can see it, right? Their feet headed all pointed toward the table. Jesus said, wash their feet. He makes this statement. Everyone's quiet. What's he talking about? Peter looks at John. Ask him. <laughs> right? Ask him who he's talking about. And so John very close with Jesus. He's leaning up against Jesus. And one, one author noted, and I thought this was interesting, he said, based off of what we looked at when they're leaning on their left-hand side, and he argued and said that it's very likely that John is on Jesus' right-hand side. He's, and I'll tell you why that matters. So he's leaning up against Jesus and kind of leans his head back into his breast and he asks him quietly, who are you talking about? And so Jesus answered him, and, and you know he answered him quietly because after he says this, no one knows why Judas leaves. So they didn't necessarily hear John's question, and they didn't hear, they didn't, they didn't hear John's question, they just heard Jesus' answer and, and when Jesus responds to Judas, we see that later. But, but Jesus said, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, 
this morsel is like a flat cracker. It's not a spongy bread like we have, but what you would do is you would scoop up some of the meat that was cooked, and it was, it was one of those bites where it was a very, that burst of flavor, right, where you scoop that up and, and you give it to someone. And when they gave that bite to someone, the host gave it to someone. It was a way of honoring and respecting that person. It, it was something that was looked at favorably for you to receive this morsel from, from the host. And so when Jesus gives that bread and that morsel to Judas, Jesus is, in one sense, right before their very eyes, doing a very kind and a loving thing for the one who is going to betray him. Even knowing he's going to betray him, he, he does this loving thing for Judas in giving him that. And what that means is that Judas must have been very close to Jesus. And what that probably means is that Judas was on Jesus's left-hand side. Now, I don't know if you've looked at all the Last Supper paintings that have been done, right? Um, we're going to some, Lord willing, to some kind of museums in, in uh, Rome that are going to have some of those paintings. But, but whatever you see in the painting, just know this, that I, that I think, well, this could be right or wrong, but I think John's on the right, and Judas is close on the left. And the left-hand side was actually the place of honor. When you sit on the left-hand side of someone, it was considered the place of honor. And so not only does he give him the morsel, but Judas is sitting on his left-hand side, and he gives him the morsel and when he gives him the morsel, John says Satan filled him, possessed him. Satan came at that point into Judas. This final act of love shown to Judas, his enemy, who is about to betray him. Judas takes it, and he probably eats it. But he takes that love of God, that love of Jesus, and he eats the morsel, but he rejects the love. That's the sin. That's the sin nature. Let me take all that God gives me in love, but I will reject the one who gives it. This is Judas. And so Jesus tells him, him now is Judas, but it's also Satan who has filled him. Listen to what he says. He says, what you are going to do, do quickly. So everyone hears this. What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one really knows why he says this except for John. John, I think, is so shocked that he doesn't say anything. I think John is kind of kicked like kicked in the stomach because he knows but he doesn't come out and say anything he just lets it transpire maybe didn't want to disrupt the dinner but whatever happens Jesus gives it to Judas John knows it Peter doesn't know the other disciples don't know but he gives it to Judas and Judas takes it 
and Jesus commands him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, in some sense, that command, you know what that reminded me of as I was thinking? I was thinking back to Job. Do you remember when Satan, he has to come before God, and he, asks, he has to ask God if, if he can undermine Job. He couldn't just do it. He couldn't just fill Job. He couldn't just challenge Job on his own. No, he actually had to go and present his case before God, and God needed to give him permission to do what he was going to do. And so God gave him that permission, and Satan did what he's going to do. And, and I kind of see that here with Jesus. When Satan fills Judas's heart, Satan has a desire. Judas has a desire. It's lined up. He wants to betray Jesus, and it takes Jesus to tell them, now, what you are going to do, do it quickly. It's commands him. He permits it to happen. And so they're confused. Some thought it was money bag related. Some thought it was preparing for the feast of unleavened bread. But in reality, it's Jesus who gave Judas over to his selfish and satanic impulses. And Jesus then permits him to go forward and to do it. Let that be an encouragement and comfort to us as well this morning, beloved. Nothing happens in life, no apostasy, no betrayal, no harm done to the church that not only has not been told to us in God's word would happen, but that God ultimately doesn't permit to happen. We need not be knocked off track by that. And that leads us to this final point here, that Jesus's betrayal was used to glorify Jesus and his love. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now only the 11 remain, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Judas's betrayals in motion. Judas left. He's alone with his disciples. The last time he's going to address them before his passion. So he'll take us all the way to the end of chapter 16. And if there's an overarching encouragement in this, it's that, again, God will be glorified through it all. The event that is going to take place, about to take place on the cross, is no matter how painful it's going to be for them who love Jesus, they're going to watch him be disgraced, they're going to watch him be mocked, they're going to watch him be crucified, they're going to watch these things happen to their Lord, some from close, they're going to hear it from others, no matter how humiliating it's going to be, and the cross was humiliating. Jesus is saying, no matter how, when you see me naked and hanging on a cross, with a crown of thorns on my head and whiplashes on my back, when you look at me, your Lord, understand that you are going to feel shame. You're going to feel embarrassed. You're going to feel like this is something I don't want to look at. And Jesus is saying, it's going to seem like that. 
And you're going to feel like there is no glory left in the world. You're going to feel like the world has overcome this God, this Jesus that I love, and it's going to seem so repulsive to you. But understand that this is the greatest moment of my glory and the glory of my Father. When I am on the cross, it is not in it is in shame for you, but it is also for my glory, the glory of my Father, and ultimately for your glory, that you would be raised again. And boy, did he not demonstrate the glory of the Father like he said he would. Think about the way that Jesus is going to the cross magnified the glory of the Father. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. Through the cross, the glory of the Father's wisdom, faithfulness, holiness, and love was displayed. Wisdom in that he could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's the cross. Isn't that wise? God could be just by punishing sin and the justifier of the ungodly. Faithful in that God had kept his promise of a coming seed in Genesis 3.15, holy in that the law's demands were satisfied by our great substitute, loving in that he provided his only begotten son to be a mediator, redeemer, and friend for sinners. This is what you should see when you see the gospel and hear it. A wise, faithful, holy loving God to redeem sinners. And how was the Son's glory magnified? It magnified his compassion, patience, and power. Compassion in that he willingly died and suffered in our place. Patience in that he submitted even to the point of death on a cross. Power. I mean, he could have just he could have ran out of patience, but he didn't. Power in that he showed himself victorious over the grave and Satan. The weight of all the world's transgressions were laid on him, and it could not keep him in the grave. And so for us, beloved, if you are in Christ and you've placed your faith in Jesus the Savior, the grave cannot hold you. And it cannot hold you because it could not hold him. And so when you die and your faith is in Christ, you know what the word of God says? You will rise again. Death will not keep you. You will not be punished for your sin. You will not have to endure the wrath of God. You will not have to live separate from God forever. But you will actually be brought into his presence and you will be saved. Is that good news? That's good news, beloved. That's what our Lord did. And so he says here in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, 
you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come, at least not for now, but a new commandment I give to you, to us, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you endured betrayal and hostility and rejection and suffering and shame and you endured the wrath of God, and you endured it all for our redemption, our forgiveness, our salvation. We know, Lord Jesus, that we are not deserving of that, for we have not loved you as we ought to have. We know that you loved us first, and you washed us, and you cleansed us, and you made us right in your sight. And we humbly thank you for that, Lord. Help us to be the faithful witnesses that you have called us to be. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. And even now as we come to your table to celebrate and to remember your sacrifice for us, we pray, Lord, that we would do that as a people that are united in your love and are committed to you and committed to your word and committed to one another. We ask that you would bless this table Bless the bread to our bodies and the wine to our bodies that you might be exalted. We ask this in your name. Amen.